Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, New King James Version. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, New King James Version. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today we're continuing our series that we call Truth in Genesis. To help us do that, we've invited a gifted scientist and logic expert, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, to be our guest in the studio. Dr. Sarfati has written a number of widely selling books that bring a clear and comprehensive scientific perspective on what empirical observations actually tell us about the age of the universe and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati is addressing a wide variety of topics that pertain to a proper understanding of the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, including evidence that the Earth's surface provides abundant evidence of a worldwide flood. Today, we'll be exploring that evidence in greater detail. But just as a refresher for where we are in the Truth in Genesis series, in our last couple of episodes, we learned that there are a number of very significant scientific problems with the dating methods that are typically used to assign ancient dates to the age of the Earth. We also learned that there is a substantial volume of empirical observations that fit perfectly with the time frames found in Genesis. Today, we're going to add to these earlier observations by taking a look at how a catastrophic worldwide flood also calls into question many of the dating assumptions so prevalent in popular discussions. But before we get too far into our discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth listeners and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you pursued your interest in logical argumentation? Well, thank you very much for having me here again on this great show. It's a pleasure to be with these listeners again. 
just a bit about where I'm from. I am from Australia and New Zealand. I'm a PhD chemist. I've been working with Creation Ministries International for over 20 years now. A lot of that in Australia, but the last nine years in this country. And one of the things I like to study is formal logic, because a lot of the arguments for evolution commit some quite glaring logical fallacies. So I want to be fairly well trained in logical arguments. As I mentioned, in our last couple of episodes of Anchored by Truth, you address some of the major problems that affect the validity of dating methods. You also showed us that there are some scientific facts that are completely at odds with the hypothesis that the Earth is millions or billions of years old, such as the recovery of intact soft tissue, such as blood vessels, from the skeletons of dinosaurs. Would you like to give us a brief overview of a few of the observations that you made? Now, see, evolutionists must have millions and billions of years for their process to have any chance. I'm not saying that millions of billions of years are sufficient, but they're certainly necessary. Yet there are a number of dating methods using their own uniformitarian assumptions that point to a much younger age of the Earth. For instance, finding soft tissue, blood cells, blood vessels that are still elastic, even intact cells, animal proteins like actin and collagen, even some DNA that could actually activate a typical DNA probe. Okay, so these things should never be there if these things were as old as they claim. They couldn't even be a million years old, let alone uh, 68 million years as the samples were claimed to be. And this is a, a one of many examples of dating methods that point to a much younger age. In fact, 90% of the plausible dating methods point to a much younger age than millions and billions of years. Thank you. That was very helpful. Very important to note that when it comes to assigning dates, most conventional geologists today depend entirely on the assumption that the current appearance of the Earth reflects processes that have been consistent and continuous throughout the Earth's history. Yet this assumption is unproven and unprovable, and the man who originally popularized this view, Charles Lyell, was not a geologist. He was in fact a lawyer, and his argument was not based on empirical observations. In fact, it was the creation scientists of his day who are committed to the use of empirical observations to support their views. Do I have that correct? Pretty much. Now, you see, Charles Lyell was, in fact, Darwin's mentor later in life. Now, he was the one who popularized the idea of uniformitarianism. The present is the key to the past. The thing is, he was a lawyer by training. Now, even the late evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould said, basically, he used a lot of lawyer tricks to try to get people to believe in his uniformitarian dogma. And Gould said the catastrophes of his day were actually the hard-nosed empiricists who wanted to go where the evidence led, even if it pointed to catastrophes. But Lyell tended to ignore those, and he also inflated some things, like the erosion of Niagara Falls. He had to ignore the actual eyewitness testimony of how fast this was eroding to try to stretch the process out for as long as he wanted. And yet even the erosion of Niagara Falls really undermines his idea of law long periods of time. And the thing is, on a voyage around the world with the Beagle, 
a young naturalist, in fact, a theological student, Charles Darwin, was the gentleman companion to Captain Fitzroy, a brilliant young captain and cartographer. And Captain Fitzroy actually gave Darwin a present of Lyle's book. And much to Fitzroy's later regret, Darwin swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. And he applied these, first of all, the uniformitarian views undermined the Bible's history. But also he applied the uniformitarianism in geology to biology. So long ages of geology, now it's long ages in biology. So let's explore the scientific support for a flood that was literally of biblical proportions. First, can we be sure that the flood described in chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis was a worldwide flood? Can the Genesis text be reasonably interpreted to permit a more localized flood? Okay, there are certain things in the Hebrew which really point to a global flood. I mean, you first look at the account in Genesis 7, and you notice how God piles on the universal language in this account. It's over and over again, the all, the every, and only Noah survived. So it's a lot of universal language, but just a local flood. In fact, if you go to the Hebrew, if I may, there's a Hebrew word for all or every is kol. Now, sometimes we know that all doesn't mean literally everything, okay? So if you've got one kol, maybe you could um, make it a local flood. But there's also the double kol, like all the higher mountains under the entire heavens. You've got kol and kol, a double kol. Now, there's no place in Scripture where this double kol is used of anything but a universal. So the double coal construction really shows it was meant to be a universal flood. And you got so many of these universal quantifiers in this account. It totally rules out a local flood. And then common sense. I mean, why build this ark, which is longer than a football field? It's wider than six lanes of the interstate. It's higher than a four-story building. It's a huge amount of trouble to go to if, in fact, there was dry land somewhere around. I mean, Lot didn't have to build an ark. He just had to go away from Sodom. And also the rainbow. What is the rainbow meant to be? God is saying, this is a sign, a reminder to God himself, never to do this again. Never to do what? Never to send another local flood again? So we're telling you that there has never been a local flood in history ever since then. I think the victims of the Japanese tsunami might beg to differ with that. Now, God doesn't break promises, so what God promised not to do was to send another global flood. What geographical evidence demonstrates that at one point in its past, the earth was entirely inundated by the floodwaters? I think there are three main lines of evidence I point to a global flood. First of all, the rock layers must have been formed extremely quickly. And we know this because of all the fossils they contain, because how would you in fact get a fossil? Have you ever seen fossil roadkill? It doesn't work that way. If you want to get a fossil of your roadkill, you've got to bury it with a cement truck, basically, so the scavengers don't get to it. It doesn't rot away and disappears. And recent research, in fact, one of my colleagues in Australia, Dr. Ron Neller, who's an expert in these areas, he showed some recent papers where you have to bury these things quite deeply. Otherwise, you get decomposition and breaks through the rock layer and then rots and bloats and floats. And so it's no good. So you have to have a lot of weight to stop this happening. But also, the porous mud draws away some of the noxious stuff that's produced when bodies rot, which would turn the whole thing into mush. 
So it's important to have this surrounding porous stuff to draw away that stuff, which means that the stuff is not going to totally turn to mush. And the thing is also, the fossil is something which is minerals where the organic material was. So you've got to have something liquid so the minerals can actually move from the rock into the fossil and replace the tissue atom by atom. So all the fossils point to a huge amount of stuff being deposited in a very short amount of time before the thing can rot away. Now, the second line is the layers are incredibly wide, relatively thin, but enormously wide that these fossils are in. In fact, the layers often go across the whole continent and have even matching layers on different continents. So whatever caused these layers must be continent, in fact, worldwide. So first you have the rapidly formed layers. Second, you have the huge extent of these layers. The third thing is I'd expect the flood to produce multiple layers very, very quickly. And this is what we actually have. First of all, the layers often have a very flat contact line. Now, you see, if you go to the Grand Canyon, you see how jagged and eroded the whole surface is because of erosion. It makes it rough and jagged. But the layers in the Grand Canyon are extremely smooth and flat. So if these layers were formed over millions of years, one after the other, how come there's no erosion? It should have had time to have erosion surfaces being very rough and jagged, and yet it's as flat as a pancake. And also things like dinosaur tracks, other tracks, you see. I mean, just think about it. If you left a track outside in the ground, how long would the track last for? Millions of years? Probably not even a week, right? So the point is, it means that the animal left the track in and it must have been buried really, really quickly before the track had a chance to erode away. So it's cemented in place by the next layer and your next layer and the next layer. There's no time between the layers, almost no time. So you've got three things here. Rapidly formed layers, as we can tell from the fossil, huge extent of the layers pointing to a worldwide cataclysm, plus no time between the layers, one after the other, no millions of years gaps between them. What paleontological evidence demonstrates that at one point there was a rapid and sudden deposit of enormous amounts of sediments and minerals. Is there any reasonable scientific hypothesis that does not require a worldwide deluge that could also account for certain phenomena we see in the fossil record? Well, I covered a lot of that, I think. But I think here's another thing which is interesting. I, and I got this from Dr. Marcus Ross, who is a paleontology PhD who's at Liberty University. There's a film called Is Genesis History? And he explained this phenomenon that we always seem to find the tracks of something much lower down than the animal that could have made it. So if you use the evolutionary dating methods, these things should be millions of years apart. First the tracks and then an animal millions of years apart. But surely an animal doesn't live for millions of years after making the tracks. So what this points to is the animal makes a tract and soon afterwards the animal himself is covered by the flood, you see. So you can imagine the animals escaping from these floodwaters, leaving tracks as it's going. The next layer of the flood buries those tracks to preserve them and the animals retreat into higher ground to try and escape but the flood catches up with it and buries it on the higher ground. So in fact there's very little time between the tracks and the burial of the animal that left it. How does the biblical description of the flood differ from flood accounts passed down in other cultures? Why can we be certain that the biblical account was the accurate and original one, and that the other flood narratives are accounts that have been distorted or mythologized through the years? 
Now, it's remarkable that around the world we have legends of a global flood with only a few people surviving. In fact, an expert on the Amazonian native culture said there wasn't a single tribe that didn't have a flood legend. So this makes sense if everyone on Earth was descended from people who survived a real flood on some sort of preservative thing like an ark. Now, as you get closer in geography to where the ark landed in Arat, you'd expect to find more commonality in the story. But as you go further away, you expect legends to develop. So you've got the core of truth there, but legendary accretions around as you get further away. Now, the most famous one was in Sumer, Mesopotamia, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the liberals say that Noah's account borrowed from the Gilgamesh account. But I think there's one very clear evidence against that, and that is the shape of the Ark. You see, Noah's Ark was designed you know, 300 cubits by 50 by 30, which turns out to be an incredibly good seaworthy design. It's almost impossible to capsize such a design. And yet the Israelites weren't known as seafaring people, yet their holy book has an incredibly seaworthy giant vessel. Now you go to the Gilgamesh epic, the ark is a cube, which is a ridiculous shape because it would capsize really easily. But it makes sense. You see, in the biblical account, you've got three dimensions to memorize. In a legend, maybe it's easier to memorize one dimension than to memorize three. And let's make one dimension really, really huge, which makes it a cubical vessel, but it's actually a stupid vessel to try to sail in. As that points out, that Gilgamesh is clearly the copy, the legend, and Genesis preserves the original historical account. How does the catastrophic plate tectonics hypothesis explain geological observations that cannot be explained by conventional plate tectonics or other forms of geological uniformitarianism? Well, see, plate tectonics in general is um, a theory that we have the crust broken into major plates, which sort of floats on the mantle below it. And also the idea that there's one continent which broke up. And in fact, this theory was proposed by a creationist, Antonio Pellegrini Snyder, who was actually a biblical creationist. He went to Genesis, which said the waters were gathered into one place, the dry land appeared, so one pre-flood continent, and it broke up. And he looked at the outlines of different continents and showed some sort of match between them. So it's quite plausible. But how do you get them to move? That's the hard part. And in fact, the uniformitarian version of plate tectonics is very hard to actually get it operational. But what if it was done much more quickly? So you have far more energy in play. And the proposal is it was a catastrophic breakup during the flood, which would have provided a mechanism to produce the flood, in fact. And some of the evidence is you've got some minerals which show evidence of enormous pressures. So it's an incredibly fast, drastic processes. But also they propose that one plate went beneath another called subduction. Okay, But then they look at the subducted rock, the temperature of the rock, it's actually quite a lot colder, thousands of degrees cooler than the temperature of the surrounding mantle. Now, if it had been going there slowly over millions of years, the temperature should have reached equilibrium. So the fact that it hasn't reached equilibrium, it's very far out of equilibrium, shows that it hasn't been there long enough to reach equilibrium. So it's consistent with this thing happening really quickly about four and a half thousand years ago, not slowly over millions of years. How many and what kinds of animals did Noah actually bring on the ark? 
Is it true that Christian scientists had considered the possibility of natural selection as a mechanism for the creation of new species? Some good questions there. Now, first of all, uh, Noah was told to bring two of every kind of land animal. Now, even before Darwin, some creationists thinking about this and thinking about the varieties we see today and comparatively few animals on the earth, they realized that a process of variation within the kind must have occurred to produce lots of different varieties. So they rejected this idea of fixity of species. Now, Charles Lyell was big into fixity of species. So when you look at Darwin's origin of species, his target was Lyell's fixity of species. His target wasn't biblical variation within a kind. So it's basically knocking down a straw man which biblical creationists don't believe, but which Lyell had believed. Therefore, there probably weren't that many kinds. You see, a kind may have been... Well, the kind was certainly larger than what we call a species, probably larger than the next group, which is called a genus, plural genera, probably as large as a family in many cases. So when you look at the number of kinds, probably only about 2,000 animals were on board the ark total. And that reflects the kinds that would have been required. Another thing is that it was only the land animals with backbones, vertebrates. So probably no insects, no sea creatures, because sea creatures can survive in a flood. Okay, so it's a matter of how many kinds of land vertebrates were needed, probably about 2,000 or so. So not that many. And even when it comes to dinosaurs, probably only 50 or so dinosaur kinds. Another thing is when they looked at the growth rings on dinosaur bones, they found that the dinosaurs went through a sort of teenage growth spurt. They started off growing quite slowly, and then they really shot up and they leveled off, you see. So it seems that God would have brought animals to Noah, which were before their growth spurts. So they will ask, well, how do you get a 30-ton Apatosaurus on the ark? The answer is, it wasn't 30 tons when it was on board. It was about one ton throughout its time on board. How do we account biblically for biodiversity and the worldwide distribution of animals? Okay, see, as I said, creationists before Darwin understood there was actually a lot of variation after the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. But it turns out, in modern theory of variation and even evolution, the main thing they talk about is allopatric speciation, which means you have reproductive isolation. A geographical isolation of small populations is where most variation is going to occur. And even the evolutionists recognize that mountainous regions are extremely good for producing allopatric speciation because of the natural geographic barrier formed by the mountains. So it turns out that Noah's Ark landed in a great place to produce rapid variation within the kind because you're getting small populations becoming isolated from each other extremely quickly. And which is why you have all the different cat kinds around the world, tigers in Asia, the lions in Africa. They can still interbreed, which is interesting. They form a liger, okay? It was a male lion, a female tiger, a liger. If it's the other way around, it's a tigon. And some ligers have babies. Like if a lion mates with a liger, it's called liliger, okay? Uh, so it shows that these are the same kind of creature. All the different cats in the world are the same created kind because a lion can breed with a tiger. 
Tiger can't breed with your domestic pussycat, but there's those intermediate cats in between where they can have babies in the chain there. So there is a chain that connects domestic cats with tigers, which shows they're the same created kind. But also, they haven't been separated that long, because if they've been separated for millions of years, they'd expect to find mutations building up, and they could no longer be fertile with each other. So it shows they haven't been separated that long, which again, is consistent with a biblical ark account. And same dogs and wolves and coyotes and jackals, they can interbreed with each other too. So there is one created kind. So this points to not that many animals that Noah had to take on board the ark, but lots of varieties within these created kinds. And natural selection would have a part to play. Now, natural selection is nothing to be afraid of. See, creationists discovered this before Darwin did. But what's natural selection actually doing? You've heard of survival of the fittest, but it's really death of the unfittest. The natural selection doesn't create the fit, it eliminates the unfit. It's a culling force, not a creative force. So supposing animals went into the ice age after the flood or just a colder climate, the ones who will survive are the ones who carry the genes for being very, very furry. And so the cold would eliminate the ones which have less fur. So it means you'll have things in that environment which are very furry, probably very white because of camouflage. Now, white just means you've lost all pigments. So, I mean, you have a, could have a downhill change, a mutation that causes loss of pigment and that makes you become white, which happens to be an advantage in that area. But again, it's not evolution because nothing new has been created. In fact, something's been lost from the population. So natural selection and this allopatric speciation would explain how lots of varieties could arise very quickly from the animals which are on board the ark. What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study the scientific dimension of the Genesis Flood? Well, okay, my Genesis account, my commentary does talk about the Ark and the Flood and evidence for them and fitting animals on the Ark and how Noah could have done this. But also there's some specialized books from creation.com about the floods and dating methods that might be pretty good. The Deep Time Delusion is one of them. There's also books about the flood. Just type flood in our search box. You'll find them as well. And also there's a Q&A page on creation.com about the flood and one about geology, one about Noah's Ark. So you can find quite a lot of good articles just on our creation.com page alone. But there's some books you can go to to go into more depth on this issue. So the big takeaway from our discussion today is that there is a substantial body of scientific observation that can best be explained by a catastrophic, worldwide inundation of the type we heard about in our opening scriptures. The Genesis Flood explains geological phenomena that are observed around the globe. Therefore, a billions of years' age for the Earth is not required for a valid understanding of geological formations. This means that the conclusion we get from Genesis, that the Earth is thousands rather than billions of years old, is amply supported by empirical observations and scientific evidence. Dr. Sarfati, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth today. And just as a reminder to our audience, this show, as well as all the Anchored by Truth episodes, will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today for our closing prayer, 
How about if we pray a prayer where we confess all the times we have departed from the truth of God's Word and our need to return to the truth found in Holy Scripture? Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time when we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Sarfati and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this or the other shows. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.